If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. You know, as an indigenous person, as a black indigenous person, obviously we've been hunting here and living in relationship with this land for thousands of generations. Otherwise there wouldn't be anything here to conserve, right? The reason that Yosemite and Bears Ears and some of these places are such natural wonders is because the humans that were living there were, were connected with those spaces. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to holistic healing, ecological regeneration, and true abundance and wellness for all. This is a community-backed show, so if you're learning from us and find this work valuable, we kindly ask for your direct support today, if you can, at patreon.com slash greendreamer or at greendreamer.com slash paypal. Today, we have Brandon Running Bear Harrell on the show with us. He is a climate resiliency planner, permaculturalist, archery instructor, and youth conservation leader of Afro-Indigenous ancestry. Though deeply rooted in what is now referred to as California and New Mexico, his expertise in community and environmental planning have enabled him to consult on major habitat restoration and climate adaptation projects as far as Taiwan, Portugal, Nicaragua, Cuba, Turkey, and Kenya. Running Bear is also known as the Decolonized Meat Eater on Instagram, where he shares his commitment to decolonize the Western hunt and reconnect Black and Indigenous communities with their traditional food pathways. This is truly a must listen, especially if you're interested in learning about our food system through the decolonized lens, as well as exploring what it means to differentiate the modern Western hunt from Afro-Indigenous ancestral skills of harvesting food. So Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. You know, born and raised here in Central Coast, California, my father's Black, you know, his family migrated here from Southern Texas a couple of generations ago in the 1940s, kind of just to escape Jim Crow, like most folks were doing at the time, and most Black folks at least. And um, my mother, her father was, comes from an Indigenous family from Tucumcari, New Mexico. They're 
Quibon, the Tewa-speaking folks, and they kind of followed the work along the the, tra the railroad moving west and eventually landed in San Francisco where my grandmother, who was migrating from El Salvador, met my grandfather. And so my mother, as a result, is Spanish, so first language, El Salvador, Salvadorian and Native American. So they both brought with them, you know, my, on my dad's side of the family, my mom's side of the family, their own particular connections to land and family. I, you know, my grandfather, I always remember sort of like he would walk me through his his backyard and he had lemon trees and fig trees and he would be grafting different pieces of trees, other trees and making me like smell them and touch the leaves and climb them and eat the fruits. And so that was something that I, I have very fond memories of. And my grandfather, you know, I, I never got to meet him because he died. My mom was 14 years old kind of like sad, tragic story. He was an alcoholic when he came back from, from being in the military. Unfortunately, a lot of Native American men kind of like succumb to, to similar fates, unfortunately. But um, he, I have a lot of photos of him riding horseback, you know, bareback in New Mexico and even here in California when he was old enough, and, you know, with a rifle on his side and pictures of my mom as a toddler in his hunting camp. Right. He'd be, she'd be holding a rifle and he'd be holding a rifle and, you know, she can barely hold the thing. It probably weighed more than her. Mm -hmm. So I had just like a lot of fond memories, of like these connections. But when I was younger, my mom would take us to the creeks and, you know, always encourage us to play in the mud, whether it was rainy or snowing outside. And we always just kind of like, you know, we're kids. As I got older, I was playing a lot of sports and kind of got disconnected. I really wanted, I yearned for that urban life. And um, just something that was different. And so as the future would have it, I kind of like have come back to a lot of those, those stories, and those photos and those moments from when I was youth. It's kind of like a long story short, but. Yeah. So your key interest today is understanding our food system through a decolonized lens. And to yep. go to the flip side of that first to perhaps understand the why, what were the key changes that occurred with our everyday people and indigenous people's relationships with food as our dominant, centralized, modern food system took root beginning the days of colonization? You know, when it comes to decolonization, like in its simplest Form, it's just like decentering the settler colonial narrative, which, you know, which is intimately interconnected to the way we think about economics, the way we think about food systems, like our values, family, right? The, this notion of a nuclear family. And it's just like a loaded narrative. And so when I, when I talk about decolonization, ultimately we're kind of separating the, the quote unquote settler native and slave because those all have their own unique perspectives their own unique value systems and their own unique semblances of time and history and, and things like that so i would say you know when it comes to decolonizing sort of like our food system something that comes to mind is just how you can't really talk about food systems without talking about the land and our relationship to the land what happened with the with agriculture, the agricultural industry here in the United States is it was sort of like born. It kind of hit the international stage because of because of slaves, because of the 
the Africans that were stolen from their homeland move here and kind of like bought and sold. You know, that kind of, that has created a, a false sense of like technology, like all the technological advancements that came from that, that came on the backs of black folks after having, you know, genocided countless cultures that we can never get back of indigenous people. The food system that we kind of, we currently have is born of that, right? It's born of this, this theft, this kind of neglect or almost just erasure of, of peoples. And the more you start thinking about where food comes from, the more, I mean, hopefully into the screen of our reality, we kind of like understand, oh, there were these narratives, these other narratives of folks who had connections to the land. And in many ways, when I start thinking about, or as I started digging into my own history of where my people came from, it sort of made my connection to food and my understanding of food just much more intimate. Mm. In something as simple as sort of like decentering the settler narrative that that I was force fed, and and you know for many reasons it's like survival, right? Like my my people, my parents, my grandparents, they had to assimilate into the settler narrative, else sort of suffer the social, economic, potentially environmental or urban sort of like environmental justice issues that would be associated. And so, in reassociating myself with these narratives I'm you know also kind of have realized that my experience is intimately connected to intricately connected to the to the food that I put in in my body right mm-hmm. <laughs> learning about the seasons and and things like that you know there's I've recently sort of become I wouldn't say recently like over the last three years I'm, I'm worker partner worker owner of a Permaculture Institute called the Urban Permaculture Institute here in San Francisco. And so it's been in like through many of those conversations and sort of like connecting with a middle class student, like middle class, middle aged students around issues of food that I've really sort of become, I guess, like sharpened my my blade on what it means to sort of connect with with the food in, in different contexts from backyards to front yards to communities. A lot of times people today look at food in a transactional manner because that's what this system encourages. So for example, maybe I buy and eat this food as a form of energy and nutritional input so that I can sustain my energy output and bodily functions. And of course, Mm -hmm. maybe I buy and eat this meal for the pleasure of the taste as well. And that's definitely meaningful too. But besides that, I think we've really lost a sense of spiritual connection with food, with their stories, their being and the landscapes that they come from. And those are things that are not captured in the economic value of the material substance of the item of food itself. But I would argue mm-hmm. just as our relationship with other people enriches our lives in intangible ways, this is another type of relationship that also can be deeply healing at an emotional and spiritual level. And then, of course, guide our politics and worldviews. So I wonder if you can speak more to your experience of how your relationship with the land and other beings have changed as you personally developed a much more intimate relationship with food that most people may not get to ever experience today? These are great questions. Um, how do I put it? So in my like in the decolonized meat eater side of things, just like in the hunting world, the connection that I have developed sort of with the, with the animals that I pursue 
you really kind of get to understand the, the spirit of animals. Like it's one thing to sort of sit down for a chicken dinner or to sit down for a some turkey bacon and it's just like wow it's right there and it's delicious but it's another thing if you've spent two days following a flock of turkeys and you really start to understand their language and you learn their language and how they interact and you get a sense of like oh this is the, the spirit of the turkey is sort of like this or a turkey will do something and you're like whoa my uncle acts the same way or that's something that's totally something my mom would have done it, it for lack of a better term, sort of like humanizes the, the the animals, I guess, you know, those those relatives that are in the environment around us. And you start to be able to have just like a more full picture of of the food that you eat and you really kind of understand the value, like why this animal is so nutrient dense. And I would say the same thing about farming. You know, I've been farming for years and there is, you know, when you are growing a potato or when you're harvesting a bunch of brassicas in the winter, it's, you really kind of get an understanding of why that chard is so nutrient dense or why those collards are nutrient dense because you're kind of like, you're spending time and you're watching them grow and you have a sense of the soil content. And as everything's breaking down, sort of, you know, how those nutrients are going to be connecting with you. And I think you have a more full picture at that point as well of sort of the world around you for me i feel like as we start to the english language is kind of limited but mm -hmm. as we start seeing the these different beings these life forms around us and start connecting with them you really sort of get a fuller picture of sort of like where we fit in this whole landscape and it really puts into question this notion that we are at the top of, of anything, right? We are, we can be either a detriment to the world around us or play a pivotal role in making sure that all the systems around us thrive. And for thousands of years, that's, that was our role, was kind of helping and encouraging different natural systems, also for lack of a better term, these ecosystems thrive. As, a, as like a keystone species. We also, I, I find in this, and I use the term quote unquote we very loosely here, but as we have pivoted to an industrial type of food manipulation, we also see the disconnection or the disassociating of these different food items as relatives. You know, if we're not in the, if we see things as othered or in another house, it's kind of hard to develop a culture or relationship with it but when you bring it into your house as a family you all of a sudden start treating things differently so you just spoke to this decolonized hunt and you make a clear distinction there from the western hunt which today as you've mentioned is a multi-billion dollar industry perhaps drawing on what you just shared in terms of the indigenous worldviews that really serve as your guidance can you help us understand how you differentiate between the decolonized hunt versus the western hunt you know, for me, it is also like similarly just, de just decentralizing the settler colonial narrative, which is par for the course in the hunting industry, unfortunately. Oftentimes in the hunting world, you'll hear this reference of heritage. You know, we're, we do this for our hunting heritage, or you hear this in the conservation realm of things, which is sort of like the hunter in, shi in, in shining armor. You know, they consider themselves to be 
sort of like on the front lines of environmental conservation. And this is all sort of, it's founded on this notion of hunting heritage, which is, you know, built on manifest destiny, (laughs) this idea that they came here seeking refuge and needed to hunt to sustain themselves. And through the hunt, and through these kind of like Boone and Crockett or Daniel Boone, I mean, narratives have sort of like forged the new man. This is the hunting heritage that I think that they're referring to. And, you know, as an indigenous person, as a black indigenous person, obviously we've been hunting here and living in relationship with this land for thousands of generations. Otherwise, there wouldn't be anything here to conserve. Right. The reason that Yosemite and Bears Ears and some of these places are such natural wonders is because the humans that were living there were were connected with those spaces. So not only do I sort of bring that perspective to this the space, I'm also not looking to extract meat or anything. I'm more so in these spaces, quote unquote, hunting to you know reconnect with the land. And it's also sharpening skills, like I'm learning skills to bring back to my family and other, you know, Black and Indigenous folks and family and friends around me, um, rather than kind of, I'm not trying to limit out, as they say, or like catch my bag limit, which is, it's just a reference to the legal framework that you can't like kill a certain amount of, like too many animals, right? And that's supposed to be connected to some types of conservation laws, which are also based on you know, Western science or biological standards that I, you know, I have my concerns (laughs) with or my gripes, but, you know, another big part of it is I, I'm very much interested in having conversations around hunting as it's connected to people and politics, Mm -hmm. which I feel like in many ways, what you find in the hunting industry is you know, not wanting to have conversations about people in politics, though they do want to have conversations of conversations around conservation, right? Or it's like these very limited spaces. Like we need to protect this land for our recreation. And this quote unquote hour is supposed to be all US citizens, right? Um, I would challenge that and say, you know, we need to be having conversations around these places, you know, why we're protecting them and who's actually doing the conservation Mm. like you're saying billions of dollars go into the hunting industry every time you buy a fishing pole or you know a firearm those taxes go to conservation funds and then those funds are kind of doled out as grants to nonprofit organizations like you know know, nature conservancy or ducks unlimited or whoever the the big sort of like nonprofit is but and I want to do more research on this, obviously, but how how much are they actually conserving, right? Like how much land, I don't, how much land are they actually conserving? Like what are their, how much carbon are they sequestering? <laughs> Those mm-hmm. billions of dollars, right? Um, I would almost argue that in the indigenous liberation movement, what you find in Unit Stoden or, you know, what you saw happening over on, um, like the Protect Oak Flats, like a lot of these indigenous movements that are happening right now, they are 
sequestering like millions of tons of carbon, but no one is sort of like bringing indigenous communities into the environmental conversation, into the conservation conversation. And there's plenty of hunters among them. There's plenty of hunters who are sort of, you know, laying down in front of tractors and demolition crews and pipeline construction crews, you know, from the southern border of so-called United States all the way up to the Arctic right now. And so for me, decolonization means bringing those folks and centering their experiences in the like smack dab middle of this, you know, hunting, fishing, outdoor recreation, quote unquote, environmental movement or greening movement, and really seeing them as on the front lines leading the conversation. You know, for me, decolonization also means realizing that there is no protecting the environment without first protecting indigenous sovereignty. Those two things have always been interconnected. And until, you know, the big conservation groups like Nature Conservancy or some of the other hunting groups who are kind of coming into the fold, like Sitka and First Light and MeatEater.com, until they sort of reckon with that, you know, backcountry hunters and anglers also, um, I don't think there's going to be like, there aren't going to be genuine gains for the environment. Like the net gain is always, there's always going to be a net loss. Right. <laughs> until we sort of, until we center the indigenous, black and indigenous experiences. I moved out to the city, all the vultures followed me, praying on my weakness like it was a disease. A few times it brought me to my knees, brought me to my knees. So I walked into the desert, Fighting through the heat Searching for the answers That I can't seem to see Tired of who they're wanting me to be Wanting me to be I definitely feel that, you know, when people start to understand sustainability to be dependent on really place-based bioregional relationships with the landscape it becomes very clear that you cannot be talking about environmentalism without centering indigeneity and place-based biocultural knowledge. So I think yeah. this is really key. And we had been talking a lot more about this on the show as well. So really thankful that you brought this up to emphasize this point. And I touched on earlier how this current system has turned a lot of meaningful forms of reciprocity transactional and either reduces elements of earth into just their material and physical value or otherwise reduces relationships into services. And I think this is what leads most people today to have a hard time drawing the distinctions that you just made between what it means to hunt with an indigenous worldview, with non-hierarchical and even animistic relationships with all beings and a sense of you know just oneness with earth versus hunting with a colonized worldview that's more or less founded on a culture of domination, extraction, and supremacy. And of course, I know we have many listeners who don't consume any animal products for their senses of morality, and I'm not here to debate that nor ask you to, because I think while we all share a deep desire to just be the best people that we can be here on earth, 
that fork in the road really depends on one's deep-seated worldviews. But Mm -hmm. I would be very curious to hear about your experience or take on practicing the decolonized hunt as a form of rebellion against the dominant exploitative food system, especially when the physical act of hunting itself is often vilified across the dominant mainstream environmental movement. First off, I love (laughs) vegan, vegan meals, my vegan friends and vegetarianism. Uh, in general, I feel personally, while I may hunt and while I may consume animal meat, there is something beautiful about the vegan or the vegetarian questioning where their food comes from and sort of like tracking down its origins. And this is maybe an assumption on my end, but I assume that most vegans have already taken like that next step of sort of like following the food chain or just sort of like the origin of how it got to their plate. Like the farm to table movement, I think brought a lot of this kind of consciousness to a lot of folks. And so I, I really appreciate that and, and connect with it a lot. And I've, you know, I've also had folks message me on Instagram. They'll, I think they track me down through some kind of hashtag and they'll just like start berating me and calling me like a Trump supporter. And, you know, wow. they're going to, there's like all kinds of crazy stuff. And then I'll message them and say, hey, you know, like I'm a black indigenous person. I'm not this redneck that you're calling me. And they're like, oh man, sorry. Like I sent a blanket message to anyone using this hashtag and I totally fucked up. <laughs> you know, I didn't, I didn't realize that other people besides Elmer Fudds of the world hunted. And I'm like, yeah, man, you're just going to want to check yourself before you do that. And also... I don't know. You're creating enemies <laughs> for a lot of other people when there could be conversations. Um, but anyways, as something that's rebellious, I haven't necessarily considered hunting as like an overtly rebellious act. But I will say that anytime indigenous people or black folks act black or act indigenous, right, it's sort of vilified. And I think that there's like a clear connection to the laws that made it basically illegal to be black and indigenous from the laws that prevented us from being able to dance and hold ceremony to the laws that prevented black folks from being able to hang out in groups or loitering, like some of those, the black codes, the Jim Crow laws. And so in many ways, it's just, it's rebellious because I'm just doing what we've done for thousands of years. But in settler colonialism, you know, that it isn't allowed because it is a threat to the the, the dominant white supremacist narrative um, that, this country is founded on. I will also say that, you know, something that I feel is particularly rebellious or something that I had in my mind a few years ago when I started getting into hunting is that there's a clear connection for, for me in the places, you know, like my lineage of the hunters also being the warriors in the family. This this kind of, I can trace this down to my, my grandfathers, right? Like they were both soldiers and in like the army and the air force and the green beret, but they were also just, they had very gentle sides. Like, like I said, my, my father's father was, he basically just grew trees and he was like grafting fool, right? (laughs) But he was also a warrior in many ways. And so I find for me as someone who's interested in decolonization and really trying to sow seeds of hope for the future of black indigenous people being able to sort of like step into that warrior within us is it's it's a huge part of what I do. You know, there's there's something very empowering of shooting an arrow 
and it just goes straight and you're completely focused and you're breathing. There's almost like a Buddhist meditative piece to it. And I would say also when it comes to shooting a gun or, you know, having to book it up a hill and over, you know, because you're trying to track a herd of deer, there is something super empowering, even if the deer just completely disappear into the, into the horizon, you have really kind of put yourself in the footsteps of your ancestors at that point. And I feel like there's something just like deeply powerful and yeah, I mean, pretty rebellious Mm. at the same time. I think you've talked before about how this activates a part of your brain that you didn't know existed before, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, there's, I've said this to, I usually kind of say this to folks who are sort of getting into hunting for the first time, but if you sat early in the morning and you're kind of like seated, sitting, leaning against a tree and you're completely still and quiet and you just, you know, the birds fly over you and they don't, there's a moment when you walk into a space, into like, patch of forest or something and everything's quiet it's typically because you've stirred them up right you're clumsy you weren't walking into the space like as quiet as you should have and then when you stop and you sit and everything settles the world around you you know the bugs the birds the squirrels they kind of forget you're there too and you get to see them sort of like looking through the window just be themselves and in these moments when when you, you know, maybe you see a deer kind of come through the clearing or you see like a flock of turkey kind of jump down from the hillside and they're walking across you. And it's really, it's happening really close. <laughs> Sometimes also maybe too close. It activates a part of your brain. I think once you're able to be in silence for that long, that I think most people don't have the opportunity of connecting to. Like all of a sudden you start being able to understand like why the birds are acting the way that they are. And you, you don't know really, but you kind of like start being able to put the pieces together. You start looking at the food and the grass, everything around you starts looking, okay, how would a, how would a deer be looking at this, this patch of grass right here? And I don't think we, you know, we as humans have so much inside of our DNA that, that helps us figure these things out because for thousands of years, it's been there. It's only for the last maybe two generations or you know, maybe three generations, if you're lucky, that you've been able to sort of like go to a store to buy food. But before that, there was always kind of like a deeper connection to things. And so it's just simply unlocking things that were there for thousands of years. And I would say that that effect is, it's quantified or it's multiplied when when you're actually sort of like per, either pursuing or evading sort of like a large mammal, <laughs> you know? Hopefully you're more on the pursuing side rather than being chased by something, but. <laughs> You know, there is something that awakens in in those moments. Um, and I, w- I would say that experience is probably different for everyone, but it's it's really special. So most people might see the convenience of big box grocery stores and supermarkets today as a form of advancement. But I do wonder about what we've lost from this collective shift in how we relate to food. 
And another rhetorical question and maybe one that will ruffle some feathers that I'd like to just raise is in the environmental space, people often talk about how it's unjust to judge people's morals based on their food choices because of issues of access to more responsibly produced or to affordable 100% plant-based options. And I very much agree with, you know, not using this as grounds for moral superiority. And that general idea is definitely valid. In fact, Black, Brown, and Indigenous communities and low-income communities face the brunt of that injustice in terms of access to healthier food and more responsibly produced options. So not in any way minimizing that injustice here. This is as an aside. When people who advocate for plant-based diets as the only righteous way of contributing to environmental good say, for example... Some land-based indigenous communities may still hunt and forage and consume animal products today simply because they just don't have access to quote-unquote better choices and feel their acknowledgement of this type of privilege as intersectional or as more woke. To me, that holds a presumption of privilege and better that is worth unpacking and questioning because it presumes that we share a worldview of what is considered primitive or backwards and what improvement, development, and advancement of our humanity should look like. So again, I'm not here to argue the morality of this, but simply to point out that depending on whose worldviews one centers, sometimes it's not a matter of quote-unquote privilege as most understand it to be about in this culture in terms of access and money inside of this system, but rather a conscious choice based on a fundamentally differing worldview of what it means to be in relationship with our lands and to be one with our earth and our landscapes. So this was a long ramble, but what comes to mind for you as these topics are brought up? Yeah, I think that's a great, great point. Um, I love that ramble. <laughs> the, I can see, you know, and I have relatives, right, who have, who have also kind of like shared that perspective with me that this advancement to the grocery store has allowed us to evolve beyond the consumption of hunting, which I push back in a, in a few different ways to that narrative because it, one, it assumes that we weren't evolved previously or that there was like a need to evolve and we somehow have evolved. And I simply just, I do not believe that that is true. You know, while I think humans are possibly evolving right now in a multitude of ways, I. I think that our evolution, in many ways, we've devolved as well. So that I just kind of like would question, would kind of put that to folks to think about ways that that we evolve versus devolve. And this whole idea of evolution on it on its own is like a very Western scientific perspective. Not to say that I'm like you know calling in Jesus and that whole Adam and Eve narrative either, but I would just sort of like yeah bring that whole kind of question or paradigm to to earth, um, no pun intended. And then, you know, the, the, the grocery store and some of those technological advance, advances like the cotton gin, right? They were all predicated on like the death, enslavement, sort of like rape and abuse of humans. And I would like to think that we get to a point as humans of not just saying technolo technology for technology's sake, but really sort of like thinking with what blood and on whose back did these technological advancements come? And at what point is a system so bloody that it actually isn't an evolution 
right? It's actually a devolution. Mm. It just, for me, it requires like a bit more compassion in our technology. Because I would, in my perspective, the technology that we live with, it's stolen technology that shouldn't be here right now, actually. It maybe should have come like in a few hundred years when humans were ready to get there without the mass enslavement of black people and the genocide of, of people. Um, for me, that's, you know, I, in, in that future is when I would say, okay, humans have evolved. I can't really say that right now with any sort of certainty, though I do think that there are a lot of things that we're sort of like learning and growing together that can be potentially like part of our emotional, spiritual evolution. I, I also think that there's this assumption that, you know, that Native American people or, or Black folks are sort of lucky to be able to go to the grocery store. Like grocery stores are seen as a foundational contribution of like European settlers to, to Turtle Island, to what we call North America and the United States. And I also would push back on that. Like, I don't think it's not, we're not grateful for, for this necessarily. I think we're grateful to be, to be living still and to be able to move forward. And I think in many ways, we're still trying to find like our hope, our footing and our collective voice and, and building these movements. But you know, I wouldn't say, it's almost like saying we should, we should be thankful to have what we have now. It's just like, I would say you should be thankful <laughs> that we, you know, that my ancestors sort of like toiled this land or had Thanksgiving and allowed you to be here, right? We taught you about corn and we, we gave you all these gifts and we're on reservations, you know, we're in the hood. Like this is our, this, is, this has become our fate for all the contributions that we've given. There's also this like false narrative that I think they, a lot of folks think that Native American people are just like out there hunting and fishing and like still, quote unquote, like still living like savages. And I would just, I would have to push back on that narrative too. One, most indigenous folks or black folks for that matter are kind of like, they have subpar nutrition, right? We're not actually getting the types of calories and nutrients that we need as a people. If you look at the statistics, we have like chronic cases of diabetes, um, and preventable disease, which are all intricately connected to the foods that we eat. So we're not actually just like out there eating all these lean foods and kind of like pulling the ripest berries off of bushes and hunting and gathering like that. Though those food systems, you know, if we were to be able to be back in connection with those land, it also means that the herds of deer, right, would be stronger the ecosystems that they lived in, like the bison, we used to have the most diverse ecosystem, I think in the world, right? The, the, the prairies of the United States with the bison were some of the most diverse ecologies on earth, but they, those turned into the dust bowl, right? Um, and so there's actually no telling, sort of like the intimate connection that we could have had if we were still able to sort of like live in those systems of oneness, tell our stories and really kind of make sure that these different species could live together. Like, is it immoral if, if one deer dies when there's 500? You know, maybe. Is it immoral when one deer 
dies like quickly rather than starving to death in a herd of 20, 40, 50,000, a million. And many people might say that the deer were actually sort of better off to have a quick sort of death surrounded by loved ones in a herd that's thriving and kind of like crosses an entire continent rather than sort of divided into these small pockets, you know, starving to death. There's just, it's just more complicated. Um, not to say, you know, I'm not trying to convince anyone of, you know, what is a just death or not, but it's definitely sort of, it's not black and white and it is connected to our lived experience. It's yeah. easy to say a lot of things when you're sort of like living in relative comfort. You can say a lot of things and it all sounds nice. Right. And to the idea of access, it's also interesting because through the native perspective, the supermarket, what essentially happened there is you went from having this open supermarket out in the open just amongst the ecosystems when all these forms of life were not commodified to what we have right now, which is everything is behind doors and you have to hand over this money that you have to earn in other ways, potentially through mm -hmm. extraction in a way that is valuable to this economic system in order to be mm -hmm. able to afford that item that you need for nourishment. So yeah. I'm not sure that form of quote unquote forward movement is should be <laughs> truly considered, you know, better off for our collective. So exactly. lots of questions yeah. raised, but I would love for you to share just, you know, what do you think we need most judging from where we are right now towards a future of decolonizing the food system and really healing our relationship with the land? I think in the simplest form, it's just sort of like narrative and perspective, just perspective, really. It's like who's questioning sort of like whose story are we centering? Like you just nailed on the head, right? Like, is it an evolved perspective to walk into a grocery store where you, there's all these rules and like social norms, right? You can't be smelly, can't sort of be like neurodivergent without there being all these sort of like weird barriers to get into the grocery store. And then you have to be like complicit in an economic system that is predicated like on inequality and capitalizing on the labor of other people. Right. That to me is barbaric, <laughs> but mm -hmm. to some folks, they might see that as evolved for whatever reason. You know, question those narratives like whose narrative am I supporting today? And I think that's like a great way to sort of move forward. Like, is it the settler, the indigenous or the, the slave narrative? We all center a narrative. <laughs> so it's just like parsing through which one which one you come from today. And to close, please feel welcome to share anything else you feel compelled to share that I didn't get to ask you about, as well as your cause to action for our listeners. I encourage folks, you know, as Indigenous and Black folks move towards decolonization and reconnecting with our food systems, support them wherever they're at. They may not be vegan. They may not have like some of the same worldviews as you. They may not have watched as many documentaries as you. But I think supporting those Native and Black voices who are sort of like in the streets fighting for a liberative future or a future in which they can have a semblance of self-determination, it's worth it. 
it it will always be worth it. You know, some things that I, I find that are like inspiring me or that I would connect people to or, you know, the Red Nation, it's an indigenous organization fighting for the liberation of, of indigenous peoples. And the Ginyu Collective, G-I-N-I-W, it's a femme, like an indigenous femme, women, two-spirit-led collective who are actually like on the front lines of stopping pipelines right now. And they, you know, you probably won't see them on the cover of any environmental zine coming out. And that's it, you know. I, I'm open to folks hitting me up, like I'm mentoring people like are interested in hunting and fishing and I don't really have a business or anything right now. I'm sort of like loosely connected to a few other organizations and yeah, I'm just open to connect. And what is the best way our listener can support you in what you're working on now? I have a PayPal up and it just kind of like helps pay for gas to get, you know, pick people up and, and take them to maybe go fishing or take them to, it used to be taking folks to like Hunter's Ed, but we don't have to go anywhere for that anymore. And there's just taking folks out to like watch deer, which some people have never like had that opportunity, right? They may have seen like roadkill deer before, but they've never actually seen a like herd of deer. And so I love taking people out to have simple experiences like that. And you find yourself wandering down a dark and lonely road When you've got a feeling in your heart that alone seems to know Feeling like a complete unknown I'm a rebel soul What's an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? The Red Nation is <laughs> always has the fire in social media content and Indigenous People's History by Roxanne Denvoir Ortiz is a book that I've read and reread and is like just constantly illuminating as far as yeah, the, just the history of place of where I find we find ourselves. I feel like if you live within the quote-unquote United States of America, it's a must-read. What do you tell yourself to stay motivated and inspired? <laughs> I'm like, just keep swimming. <laughs> um, I don't, every morning I sort of I wake up and I, I thank my relatives, the ancestors that came before me, my benevolent ancestors, and, you know, the ancestors that are going to show themselves to me and just being open, open to that, whether it's, you know, a bird or the wind or the rain or, you know, whatever, however it manifests, just kind of like being open to those messages. And what makes you most hopeful for our world at the moment? I would say it's the land back movement, like hashtag land back, hashtag skills back. Like it's a movement that's happening, but we sort of like, we need to create it, right? And that for me is is giving me a lot of hope that 
we find in different enclaves, folks are really like rematriating the land in ways that I feel are beautiful and just and really allowing people of color and other like marginalized communities to reconnect with their food, um, reconnect with their culture and customs and ingredients and spices in ways that I think we only like would have dreamed of maybe a generation ago. Mm. Well, Green Dreamer, we are coming to a close, but again, you can follow Bran on Instagram at Decolonized Meat Eater, and you can find his PayPal information there as well if you're able to support him. Bran, thank you so much for joining us today on the show. Really appreciate your time and really looking forward to continuing to follow your journey as well and learning from you online. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Um, you know, keep tuning into this podcast and I would say, yeah, finding indigenous podcasts and other perspectives to learn about sort of like this quote unquote green movement or conservation or sort of like the land-based struggles, which are all interconnected. There's a lot of beautiful work happening out there. Well, Green Dreamer, we've come full circle here. If our show has inspired you, we'd love to get your direct support at patreon.com slash green dreamer. That is what makes this show and our diverse range of topics explored that are very often left out of mainstream dialogues possible. So thank you so much to all of our past and current supporters and patrons. Today's intermission song featured is Rebel Soul by Ray Zaragoza. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell, and our production intern is Spencer Carter. And of course, I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I will catch you soon in the next episode.